Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Well, 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 it's our last session of the day. Thank you so much, Tripwire Presents, for being an amazing sponsor. We appreciate you so much. There we go. For some reason, it keeps disconnecting my mic. So what what part didn't you hear? We've got Andrew Thomas, a video game attorney, and this talk is discussing how to maximize your IP with a video game lawyer. So take it away, Andrew. Hi, uh, so um, let me make sure that my slides are, uh, if you could see my presentation, great. Uh, so welcome to understanding and maximizing intellectual property. Uh, in this presentation, I'll be covering how US intellectual property law operates, as well as show you different ways in which you can maximize your IP rights. So as I said, my name is Andrew Thomas. I'm an attorney at Carr and Farrell. I specialize in intellectual property transactions and corporate law, in particular, how those areas impact the video game industry. Uh, before we begin, a quick legal disclaimer. I am not your attorney. No attorney-client relationship is formed by attending this presentation. This presentation is intended for legal education and not as legal advice. If you do have any actual legal issues, then please reach out to a lawyer after the presentation. So to begin, there are three basic intellectual property regimes. There are copyrights, trademarks, and patents. There are also other areas that are associated with the IP, such as right of publicity, and the, which is the right to use a person's name, image, or likeness, and trade secrets, which is the ability to protect secrets and proprietary information. Uh, trade secrets is often used to fill the holes that like other IPs will, other IP laws will not protect. Uh, so copyrights and patents both come from the IP clause of the Constitution, um, and trademarks, on the other hand, come from the Commerce Clause. So the first IP that we will be covering is copyright. Copyright is the main IP protection for video games. Uh, this slide is just a basic overview of copyright law, which we will go into more detail. Uh, copyright protects artistic expression, uh, but it does not protect abstract ideas or functionality. Specifically in video games, copyright does not protect game mechanics. Uh, copyright protection is granted as soon as the work is created. You do not need to register your work with the Copyright Office to get protection, but it is highly recommended you do register as soon as possible because registration will give you access to the courts as well as a special statutory type of damages. Copyright protection lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years. However, if a copyright is deemed a work made for hire, then the protection can last for um, 95 years from publication or 120 years from creation. And you choose whichever one ends first. So who can create a copyright? Uh, within copyright law, we define the entity that creates the artwork as the author. This comes from copyright's close ties to books and publishing. Um, in the United States, only a human author can own copyright. Uh, so this was affirmed in a case called Naruto v. David Slater, which is the monkey selfie case. This is a personal favorite case of mine. In this case, a monkey stole a camera from a photographer and started taking selfies. Uh, the picture that you see on the slide is actually one of those pictures. Uh, once the photographer recovered the camera, he started to sell the selfies in like books. Uh, PETA sued on behalf of the monkey, claiming that the photographer was infringing the monkey's copyrights. Um, 
the photographer claimed that he owned the copyright since it was his camera. The Ninth Circuit ruled that no one owned the copyright. The monkey was deemed to be the author of the photographs because he was making the artistic choices um, when taking the pictures. Uh, but because copyright is a human construct, uh, the monkey is unable to enjoy the benefits of copyright law. Therefore, because he cannot, the monkey cannot enjoy the benefits of copyright, that means that no copyright protection is extended to the work and the work, the photographs become part of the public domain. The photographer does not uh, have a right to the photographs copyrights because he did not make any artistic choices that would deem him to be the author. Simply owning the camera was not an artistic choice. So the, there are really three things that we could take away from this case. One, ownership over a tool does not create a right of ownership within a copyright. Uh, two, non-humans can create copyrights, but because they cannot utilize the rights of the work, they, the work falls into the public domain. And a work that falls into the public domain means that anybody can use that work. So the, uh, the photographer was still able to sell the books and the pictures, just that anybody can now sell these pictures if they wanted to. The photographer would not be able to stop, uh, stop them. So this logic is the same logic being applied to AI-generated artwork. The Copyright Office uh, recently issued guidance stating that any artwork generated by AI would not enjoy the benefits of copyright protection. And there was actually a recent lower court ruling which sided with the Copyright Office. Um, now, this is not to say that you cannot use AI to help you develop your games, but you need to understand that there are legal risks in incorporating AI-generated work into your game because the AI-generated work will lack copyright protection. Um, so you may not want to use AI to generate the design of your main character because then anybody could then use that design if they wanted to. So we've talked about you know who can create a copyright, but now who can own a copyright? Understanding how copyright ownership functions is fundamental to understanding how you can utilize your rights. As mentioned earlier, copyright protection is granted as soon as the work is created. Once the work is created, the copyright is automatically given to the author with one exception, which I'll get to in a minute. That means that as soon as the author of a book finishes writing that book or a painter finishes their painting, they own those copyrights. Furthermore, the Copyright Act requires all assignments or transfer of ownership be in a written contract signed by the parties. So what this means is if a developer hires a composer to create a soundtrack for the developer's game, the developer needs a written agreement signed by the composer assigning the music copyrights to the developer. Without a written assignment, the composer still owns the copyright to the music. The developer may, may be able to use the music in the game under an implied license, but they would need the composer's permission to use the music in a sequel or uh, to sell the music as a standalone album. Furthermore, failure to acquire the music copyrights in the beginning could lead to a situation where the composer demands a larger payout from the developer after the game has been successful. And this situation is not unique to music either. Anytime a developer hires a person to create any aspect of their game, the developer should be thinking about who owns the underlying IP rights and then what steps uh, need to be taken to acquire those rights. Now, I did mention that there was one exception, and that exception is the work made for hire doctrine. Work made for hire comes from the Copyright Act. Um, the law basically treats the company as the author instead of the human. Now, this is still just a legal fiction. Uh, a human is still creating the artwork, it just is automatically transferred to the company. Uh, work made for hire applies in two instances, full-time employees and independent contractors. However, work made for hire treats these two situations differently. Full-time employees do not need a written assignment. However, it is recommended that you do still have one uh, just to be safe. But by law, the work of a full-time employee is automatically transferred to the employer. However, the work has to be created within the scope of the employment for that employee. So a 3D artist or a writer at EA or Blizzard, anything they create would be 
uh, deemed a workmate for hire and transferred to EA or Blizzard. A janitor who works at EA but makes games on the weekends, that would not count as a workmate for hire since making games is not within the scope of the janitor's employment at EA. Independent contractors or commissions do require a written assignment. Uh, under the workmate for hire doctrine, the written agreement actually needs to specify that the work is a work made for hire, and it needs to be signed by the author. The agreement also should be signed prior to any work being created. You cannot retroactively make a work a work made for hire. Um, if you do try to do that, that would just be a simple assignment. Uh, in the earlier example, the developer would most likely want to specify in the agreement that the music was a work made for hire. Um, and the reason why the, uh, the developer would want that is because work made for hire is treated differently than uh, normal copyright under the Copyright Act. Work made for hire has a different length of protection and is not subject to the termination rights uh, in Section 203 of the Copyright Act. Uh, overall, the best practice is to always have a written IP assignment, either as a separate agreement or in the employment contract. Um, and if you want it to be a work made for hire, make sure that it is a work made, uh, you say that is a work made for hire. So we've talked about who can create a copyright, but how do you create a copyright and what is a copyright? Well, copyright is known as the art IP since it mainly protects artistic expression. However, the law actually defines copyright much broader than just protecting art. Um, the top box here is the language from the Copyright Act, and it reads, copyright protection subsists in original works of authorship fixed in any tangible medium of expression. So there are really only two requirements under the Copyright Act to be uh, considered copyrightable. The work needs to be or original, and the work needs to be fixed in a tangible medium. So originality is, has its own two requirements. Uh, to be considered uh, original, it, the work just needs to be independently created and have a modicum of creativity. Independently crea uh, created means that you did not copy the work from another existing work. Uh, your work does not need to be novel in any way. It does not need to be some super original idea. It just needs to not be a copy of an existing work. Once, uh, furthermore, the work also needs to have a modicum of creativity. And the modicum of creativity really means you, uh, a creative choice was made by the author. Uh, a good example I'd like to give is you decide to take a photograph of a lake at 5 p.m. Those are all choices that would meet that threshold. Um, even though they seem like simple choices, they would still be deemed a modicum of creativity. A modicum of creativity is a really low bar because judges do not want to be art critics. They do not want to sit there and decide what is considered art and what is not. So once you meet originality, the work act needs to be fixed um, and fixed in a tangible medium, either now known or later developed from which the work can be perceived, reproduced or otherwise communicated. And what, so, in normal language, what this means is the work is put into a permanent medium and that you can access the work for a good amount of time. Uh, you know, put writing a story on a piece of paper or painting a picture on a canvas, those, those are, that would be counted as fixation. Uh, drawing a picture in the sand, that would not be fixation because it would not be permanent. The you know, your ocean would wash away the picture or the wind might want, um, blow it away. So it would not meet fixation requirement. In order, it's important to remember that to be considered fixed, it needs to be permanent and accessible. So there are some things that cannot be copyrighted. Uh, this is a list of those things. Some of these are actually protected by other forms of IP. Uh, the big ones to really remember are that um, ideas, ideas cannot be copyrighted. If you have an idea to make a movie about an asteroid hitting Earth, that that is not copyrightable. But the movie Deep Impact can be copyrighted because it is the expression of that idea. Ultimately, what is being copyrighted and protected is the expression of the ideas. And then and the expression is um, those creative choices that the author makes that I was discussing earlier. 
for video games in particular, game mechanics and game rules are generally thought to be functional and therefore not copyrightable. Uh, just think about how difficult it would be for anyone else to create a platformer if Nintendo owned a copyright on the jumping mechanic. You, know, you would not be able to make any platforming game if that was the case. However, I, I should caution that this is not necessarily a bright line rule. There are, have been some recent cases in which court has found there to be copyright infringement when um, like a group of game mechanics were copied. Um, also, it should be noted that game mechanics might be patentable uh, and that you might be committing patent infringement instead of copyright infringement. So it's still best to tread with caution when you are kind of take appropriating game mechanics from another game. Uh, and finally, the, the last one that I think you should be aware of is uh, known as Sins Affair, which roughly translates a scene that must be done. Um, and this is basically an aspect of a story or um, that, that must be done in order to communicate an idea. Uh, th this is usually kind of very general like tropes or something that you would find in like, you know, for example, finding a femme fatale in a uh, film noir is an example of a son's affair where it, it's something that must be done. So you've created a video game and you own all the underlying copyrights, but what does copyright protection actually get you? Well, it gets you these bundle of exclusive rights. And these exclusive rights are to make copies, the right to prepare derivative works, the right to distribute or sell the work, the right to publicly perform the work, the right to uh, display the work publicly. Uh, and then the last right, number six, is the, um, it really only applies to streaming music. It's the right to publicly, uh, you know, transmit your music uh, via digital audio transmission. Um, but these rights, all of them, th are, these rights are very important. These rights are the basis for everything you do with your copyright. Um, a key feature of copyright is that these rights can be separated. What that means is if you want to sell the right of public performance but retain the other rights, you are allowed to do that. So there are really three ways to maximize or utilize your copyrights. You can utilize them by personally utilizing the rights. So you can make copies of your own game and sell the game. Uh, you can also publicly perform your game if you wanted to. However, I should say that utilizing your rights effectively can be extremely difficult because it requires a lot of resources and it might require uh, knowing other people to help you. Uh, so you know, while you can personally utilize all of your uh, copyrights, it might not be the most effective way to uh, utilize them. You can also sell your rights. You know, as we discussed, you can sell them in whole or in part. And but once you sell them, you won't be able—you lose the ability to exploit those rights. And finally, you can license your copyright. Licensing is permission from the copyright owner to use one or more of the exclusive rights of a protected work. There are some key points to remember: a license is not the sale of a copyright. The copyright owner still owns it if they license it. A license is also not a release of past use. So if somebody used a song without permission and then obtained a license, that license does not automatically forgive that past infringement. Now, you can include a clause in the contract which the copyright owner waives their right to sue. And this does happen when there has been a dispute and uh, the defendant is forced to acquire a license from the uh, copyright owner. Um, but it is something that you have to include. It, is not an, it, it does not automatically happen. License agreements are really customizable. Um, you can, uh, and unlike a uh, assignment, License agreements don't have to be written. They can be verbal uh, or written. Um, they can be expressed or implied. Uh, in, but usually like a verbal license is also is generally an implied license. But the best practice is to always have a written license agreement, which expressly states what is being licensed. You can even customize the license by defining the scope of the 106 rights that we discussed. You can draft the license very broadly to allow the licensee to do basically anything, or you could narrow it so that they only have the right to publicly perform the game within like a certain venue. Uh, 
you can define if the if there's a term limit or not. If you want the license to go on forever, you can specify that. But if you want the license to only go on for a year, you can specify that. You can also define the geographic terms in which the licensee can operate. Uh, you can define if you want the license to be exclusive or non-exclusive. Um, but you should be careful with exclusivity because that means that only the licensee can utilize the rights being granted in the agreement. Um, and this would even apply to the copyright owner. So if, uh, for example, you give the exclusive license to a publisher to sell your game, then you as a developer cannot turn around and start selling your game. Now, exclusivity does stack with other terms. So if you give an exclusive license for selling your game in the United States, then you're allowed to give a, you know, a license to sell your game, but in Japan. You know, those, that, that would not conflict with each other. So a key aspect to be aware of in, um, in a license agreement is derivative works. A derivative work is any work that is based on or derived from one or more existing works. A classic example of derivative works is you know, a sequel to a popular game. But a derivative could also be an, a television adaptation or a, a movie adaptation. It can also be converting your, your IP into toys or posters or t-shirts. Um, translations of your game into another language. That's also considered a derivative work. As the owner of the original copyright, you have the sole right to prepare any derivative works. However, derivative works are treated as their own copyright, separate from the original. What this means is the author of the derivative work owns the copyright to the derivative work. The derivative works copyright does not automatically transfer to the original author slash owner, even in cases when the derivative work is unauthorized. The owner of the derivative work uh, only gets to own the new choices um, that are unique to the derivative, so they can't claim ownership over anything that might come from the original, but they still own the derivative work. So it is extremely important when negotiating a license to understand who can create derivative works and then who owns those works. You can include provisions in the license or a terms of service which transfers ownership of the derivative work, but it needs to be specified in the agreement. So how do you protect your copyright? You know, how do you prevent somebody from making an unauthorized derivative work? Well, copyright infringement happens basically when the somebody exercises one of those six exclusive rights without authorization from the copyright owner. Um, to prove copyright infringement, the plaintiff needs to prove that first, the defendant had access to the work, and two, the works are substantially similar. Um, access can be as simple as you saw the movie or you heard the song. Um, copyright law does allow for the possibility that two authors created a similar work independent of each other. Um, so if you are able to prove that you did not have access to the work, that is a legitimate defense to copyright infringement. But it is pretty easy to prove that you, know, you might have had access to it. Um, but once you establish access, then you have to show that the two works are substantially similar. Courts do this by applying, uh, by literally examining the two works next to each other. And if the court believes there's enough similarities there, then there's infringement. However, what has to be similar is the copyrightable material. You're people are allowed to copy non-protected elements. So uh, and different courts have different tests in order to uh, figure out if uh, what's being copied is copyrightable material. So a good example of this is the recent case involving Nike's Air Jordan logo. Nike based the logo on the Jumpman photograph featured here um, above. The Ninth Circuit ruled that Nike did not infringe the photograph because Nike only took the pose. And a pose is not copyrightable, um, which makes some sense when you think about it because like poses, if someone was able to copyright the pose of a person standing, then that would affect a lot of uh, you know movies, video games, a lot of paintings, you know, it's just people standing around. So because a pose is not copyrightable, Nike was found to uh, not be infringing the photograph, despite how similar they look. 
So the three tools to use for to protect against copyright infringement are cease and desist letters, DMCA takedown notices, and litigation. Each tool has their own benefit and risk and limitations. Uh, cease and desist letters are the cheapest, but they are not legally binding. And you risk uh, it becoming a public relations nightmare by somebody publishing the letter online. If you come across as too demanding, then that may backfire against you. DMCA takedown notices are also an effective way to remove infringement, but uh, you know people are able to re-upload and get around that. And then finally, there is litigation. And while litigation may be pretty definitive in terms of its outcome, litigation is also the most expensive and intense option. And generally, you would probably want to seek other avenues to get the issue resolved versus going all the way to court. So the next IP we'll be discussing is trademarks. Uh, a trademark is any word, phrase, symbol, design, or combination uh, that identifies your goods or services. Uh, that is the actual legal terminology. The non-legal speak is that trademark protects brands, logos, slogans, things that you kind of connect with marketing and branding. Um, unlike copyrights and patents, trademark is a form of consumer protection. Congress gains its power to regulate trademarks through the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. The policy behind trademarks is that a company spends a lot of time and money building up their reg reputation so that consumers come to associate a certain level of quality in those products. And that trademark helps consumers uh, by making buying decisions easier. And you want to give companies the ability to enforce their trademarks so that there won't be any confusion within consumers. So what can be trademarked? Well, a lot of things can be trademarked. Uh, a trademark just needs to distinguish the product from other goods or services and signal uh, the source of those goods or services. The key elements to remember is that a trademark is it distinguishes and it points back to the source. Um, this is a list of uh, things that have been trademarked before. Um, one I would like to point out is uh, product packaging, otherwise known as trade dress. Trade dress can include the shape of a Coke bottle to the interior decoration of a fast food chain restaurant. Um, but in order for trade dress to be uh, protectable under trademark, it needs to acquire secondary meaning, which is something that we'll talk about in a moment. In fact, a lot of these otter ones, such as like smells and colors, uh, sounds, uh, these generally have to acquire secondary meaning before receiving any trademark protection. So it's quite difficult to actually get protection on those. So what cannot be trademarked? Well, uh, a product's functionality cannot be trademarked. Functionality is the realm of patents. And so if you, even if you sell a product that has a very distinctive feature uh, that uh, no one else in the market is selling, if it's deemed to be functional, you will not get trademark protection, which this comes up more in trade dress disputes than, than any other forms of trademarks. Proper names or likenesses cannot be trademarked without the consent of that person. Uh, general uh, generic terms or phrases can also not be trademarked. And then finally, government symbols or insignia. Uh, so as I just mentioned, um, you know, generic terms cannot be protected. But in order to determine if something, if a term is generic or not, uh, courts have categorized the mark, uh, marks into one of five categories. So you have generic, descriptive, suggestive, arbitrary, and fanciful. Generic terms are any words that communicate what type of product or service is being offered. Examples are like email or ice cream. Generic terms can never be trademarked. In fact, it is possible that a term can lose trademark protection by becoming generic through a process called uh, genericide. Um, and this is when a trademark term becomes synonymous with a product. Uh, terms like escalator, aspirin, heroin, trampoline, these were all once trademark, but lost protection because they became so associated with the product. Descriptive terms are terms that describe what a product is. So bacon, bake, break, Break and bake cookies, though, or American Airlines, those are both kind of descriptive terms. They require a little imagination, but it's just a little to understand what the product or service is. However, descriptive terms can gain trademark protection if they acquire secondary meaning. 
suggestive terms require more imagination than descriptive terms, but it is still associated with the product. Suggestive terms can be trademarked, but if you're tra if it's determined to be suggestive, you might uh, have to argue with the USPTO one or two times before it will be uh, you're allowed to register that mark. Some examples of suggestive terms are like Airbus, Netflix, or Coppertone. Arbitrary terms are common words used in unusual ways. Examples is like Apple, you know, Apple is not the, you know, the product Apple's is not associated with computers at all. Uh, and that's why it's deemed arbitrary. Arbitrary terms are automatically trans trademarkable. Fanciful terms are made up words. Uh, Kodak is a great example. These are also automatically trademarkable. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all the speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. So as I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, you know, a, a descriptive, a descriptive term can gain trademark protection if it acquires secondary meaning. Secondary meaning is when the public associates a term as an indicator of the goods or services uh, sourced despite the term being descriptive. So with that, secondary meaning is often acquired by using a term over an extended period of time. A fantastic example is American Airlines. American Airlines is descriptive. It is describing a service in which airlines are flown in America. Uh, but because the term um, is so associated with a particular company, it has secondary meaning and therefore it has trademark protection. So you can uh, acquire a state or federal trademark. Um, most of the time when we're talking about trademark law, we are actually talking about federal trademark law. Uh, so most of the trademark law we've been discussing has been federal trademark. To get a federal trademark, you need to establish uh, both that it distinguishes and points to uh, your mark distinguishes and points to a source, as well as that the term is trademarkable. But you also need to establish that the goods or services be, uh, are being exchanged in interstate commerce. And what interstate commerce simply means is that you're selling your goods or services across state lines or to people from out of state. Um, this is really easy to satisfy, especially for video games. Um, if you're selling your game on, game on Steam, then that would be deemed interstate commerce. Um, if you do not happen to be selling uh, across state lines, uh, then you can still acquire state uh, trademark protection, but this is only limited to the state that you get trademark protection in. So that means that somebody else could use your trademark in, the, in another state. So it is generally better to get a federal trademark. Uh, so in acquiring a trademark, you need to be using your name or logo uh, on your product or service. Uh, and once you start using your name, then you can submit it, your mark to the USPTO to be registered. You can file what's known as an intent to use, uh, which means that you're intending to use your trademark in the future. However, you cannot hold on to an intent to use application indefinitely. So you at some point need to be using that mark. Uh, the USPTO will examine the mark to determine if it can be trademarked through a process known as trademark prosecution. And trademark protection lasts for as long as the mark is in use. Uh, when you file tr for a trademark application, the USPTO will publish the application. That's just why you'll see news reports about like Nintendo filing for trademark protection on this term and that term. Um, there are methods for hiding that, but it's generally not worth the effort. Um, so trademark infringement happens when there is a 
uh, likelihood of confusion. And this means, will an ordinary consumer be confused by the two trademarks or the two marks in question? Sometimes this is very easy to determine. You know, a defendant uses Coca-Cola's label to trick consumers into buying a counterfeit product. Slam dunk, trademark infringement. The more complicated case is when a potential infringement mark is similar to the original, but not identical. And to determine if there is a likelihood of confusion, courts will examine the two marks uh, through the lens of eight factors. Different courts have slightly different factors or in a different order, but these are the core factors. So you have the strength of the mark, and this goes back to if the mark is descriptive or fanciful. How similar the marks are, do they look the same? Do they sound the same? How are the products marketed? Are they marketed in the same way? Products, uh, proximity of goods, are the products similar? If Is one product a computer and the other a couch? Also proximity can refer to geographic location or where the goods are sold. So if one product's only sold in Vermont and the other is only sold in Mexico or New Mexico, then there's usually there might not be a likelihood of confusion. What was the defendant's intent when they selected the mark? As we, the example I gave earlier about, you know, switching the Coca-Cola labels, the defendant probably intended to cause consumers confusion. Did the, the defendant select the mark because it looks similar to the plaintiff's mark? Is there evidence of actual confusion? And so this is when in trial, both sides will go perform blind studies and present them in trial to show that either there was confusion or there was not confusion. Uh, and then finally, how well informed is the purchaser? Are they really educated or not so educated in terms of the, the goods being sold? That could influence whether or not there was trademark infringement. So to protect against trademark infringement, the tools are very similar to copyright. Uh, you have cease and desist letters, uh, takedown notices, and then finally litigation. And as we discussed earlier, they, they all have their pros and cons. And you know you should really discuss with a lawyer what is an effective strategy. Uh, one thing to note that trademark protection is a lose it or lose it type of IP, which means that if you do not enforce your trademark, then you potentially could lose the ability to enforce it down the line. So this is often why you see a lot of big brands be very aggressive in terms of how they are enforcing their trademarks. So the final type of intellectual property I'll be talking about is patents. Now, patents, simply put, is the protection of inventions. This is often referred to as the hard IP. For an invention to be patented, it needs to satisfy four requirements. The invention needs to be, have patentable subject matter. The invention needs to be new. It needs to be useful. And an invention needs to be non-obvious. And I'll go through these in some more detail shortly. A patent is basically a monopoly on a technology for a limited time. Um, and in exchange, you know, we give this monopoly in exchange for the inventor telling, disclosing the invention in detail that uh, somebody else could replicate that invention once the patent expires. Um, now, I should say patents are by far the most expensive form of IP, uh, but they can be the most profitable, too. So there are three types of patents you can apply for. There are utility patents, design patents, and plant patents. Um, I don't imagine many video game developers or publishers will be interested in plant patents, so I will not be discussing them. But if you do have questions, uh, we could talk about it later. Um, utility patents are by far the most common types of patent applications. Uh, utility patents cover pretty much every patent we'll be discussing. As the name just suggests, these cover utility functionality. A utility patent lasts 20 years from the time of filing. It's important to remember that it's from the time that you filed the patent application, not from when the patent application is granted. Then there are also design patents. Design patents cover non-functional ornamental design. Uh, for example, the shape of a PlayStation 5 would be covered by a design patent. Uh, there is some overlap between design patents and trade dress from trademarks, uh, but design patents are easier to acquire and uh, because they don't require the secondary meaning like trade dress does. 
Uh, design patents only last for four to years from the time of filing, as opposed to utility patents, 20 years. So uh, if you have an invention, you need to show that the invention has patentable subject matter. And this is known as the 101 requirement. Um, and so what patentable subject matter is, is any process, machine, manufacturer, composition of matter, or improvements thereof. Um, and that is a pretty broad in terms of what can be patented. Um, this allows for you know, a, a new machine to be patented, but it also allows for a new method of accounting to be patented. So it, it is very broad about what can be patented. But there are still some things that uh, would, are not considered patentable subject matter, such as laws of nature, physical phenomena, and abstract ideas. Um, abstract ideas are the ones to be aware of because um, this is often, uh, when it comes to software patents, uh, they are often deemed abstract ideas. Uh, so the, if you have an invention that is a software base, it's important to get good patent counsel to discuss with them if you have patentable subject matter. So let's say you have patentable subject matter. Well, the next step is to determine if the invention is novel. Novelty means that the invention has not been done before. Um, if the invention has been created at any point prior, if you are barred from gaining a patent. Now, it is extremely rare for there to be two identical patent applications, and a good patent attorney will be able to highlight the differences uh, to illustrate why your invention is novel. But you can sabotage your own novelty by committing what's known as a public disclosure of the invention. A public disclosure is when you reveal the invention to the public, um, which you can do you know, if you start to sell uh, the invention or if you go to a conference and you discuss the invention in a lecture. Um, furthermore, emailing de a detailed description of the invention to like a potential investor, that could be deemed a public disclosure. So in the United States, you have one year to file a patent application from the first public disclosure. However, in other countries, any form of public disclosure will be an automatic bar from filing a patent application. So generally what we recommend is filing for a provisional patent application before making any sort of public disclosure. And provisional patent applications are cheaper and quicker than a normal patent application. So that is why we uh, generally recommend it because you will get that protection in terms of novelty, but you uh, can get it done quickly. So uh, under current patent law, the invention needs to be new and useful. The term is uh, new and useful is found in section 101. Uh, so what this means is the invention needs to have a useful purpose. And this can be, you can figure this out by simply asking, does my invention solve a problem? When you read through a patent application, you'll see in the description uh, section, they will talk about what the problem is and how this invention solves that problem. Now, the problem does not need to be like, I cured cancer. The problem can be as simple as, it takes a long time to perform a certain action, and I developed a device or a method that reduces that time. It is extremely rare for a patent application to be considered not useful. Uh, so I'm actually struggling to think of an example. So you can usually meet this requirement, but it's something to keep in mind. So once you have shown that you have patentable subject matter and the invention is new and useful, you also need to show that the invention was non-obvious. A lot of patents are improvements of existing technology. And as public policy, we want to reward inventors who are innovative and creative instead of rewarding those who just came up with a solution that anybody could come up with. So you need to uh, come, so that's what we mean when we say non-obvious. What so how do you determine that? Well, obviousness is judged on the person of ordinary skill, the art standard. And basically you ask the question, would a person of ordinary skill in the art, um, would they have figured out this solution? Uh, a person of ordinary skill is a mythical person that has average skill in the patents technical area. Uh, a good example to illustrate this is, would a new method for fixing toilets have been obvious to an average plumber? The answer is yes, then that, that 
would be considered obvious and not patentable. Uh, it's important to note that the people making this determination are judges and patent examiners. It's not necessarily the average plumber. There are some important things to consider when deciding if you want to file for patent protection. First is that the United States operates under a first-to-file system, which means that by whoever files the application first at the USPTO gets priority. It does not matter who invented the device first. The majority of the IP world also operates under a first-to-file system. Unlike copyrights and trademarks, you only can enforce your patent rights once the application has been granted. Uh, now, those rights are technically retroactive, but you cannot exert any of those rights until a patent is granted. And obtaining a patent is very expensive, far more expensive than copyrights and trademarks. Um, there are filing fees, and then you have to go through prosecution. And prosecution is when you know, the USPTO examines the application. 99% of the time, the USPTO will re reject the application and say it's not patentable. Um, and they'll issue what's known as an office action. Now, the applicant is allowed to respond to the office action and rebut the USPTO's arguments. But generally speaking, prosecution goes for about two to three rounds uh, before the USPTO will issue a notice of allowance. Once a notice of allowance is issued, then the applicant must pay the issue fee and the patent is granted but you still have to pay uh, maintenance fees after the patent is granted. So wh why, why go through all that? Why go through all that expense and effort just to get a patent? Well, the patent gives you the exclusive right. It gives you the right to exclude others. Uh, with the patent, you can prevent others from making, using, offering to sell, or selling the patented invention. So essentially, this means that you can become the sole source for that technology. And that could be a very powerful tool to have. Uh, and so and it's important to remember that like the patent owner has no obligation to utilize those rights. They simply have the ability to block others from, from practicing the technology. Uh, now, this monopoly is uh, you know, only lasts for 20 years, uh, but 20 years can be a long time when you think about it. So patent infringement happens when there's an unauthorized making use or off offering to sell or selling of the patented invention. Uh, patent, patents are essentially strict liability. It does not matter if the infringer knew about the patent or if they even knew about the invention. Um, you know, this is in contrast to copyright, where in copyright, if you could show that you did not have access, then that's a legitimate defense. So in, in, that is not the case in patent infringement. Patent infringement, if, if you are practicing the technology, whether you knew about it or not, that is considered infringement. There are really only two defenses to patent infringement, and that is A, that the patent is not valid and or b that the defendant is not actually practicing the technology so the first defense is to attack the validity of the patent itself essentially you're saying the uspto made a mistake and that the patent should not have been granted and please court and validate this patent uh, and so you're basically arguing that the patent claims non-patentable subject matter or the patent is not novel or that the patent is actually obvious the second defense is to argue that you did not actually infringe the patent. And this is based off of how broadly defined the, uh, the scope of the claims are in the patent. And this, so basically what happens is there will be a careful reading of the patent and you'll compare what is happening with the infringing technology. And this is all based off on how broadly or narrow the patent is written. So how do you avoid being sued for patent infringement? Well, the best way is to know all relevant patents and all other inventions out there and avoid those things. But, you know, practically speaking, it is nearly impossible to plan around avoiding existing patents or patent application. There are currently over 11 million granted patents in the United States alone, and that number is only growing. So, you know, trying to find every relevant piece of prior art is, you know, very difficult and you're likely to miss something. But the, so the point being is that it's better to not live in fear 
of being sued for patent infringement because it is extremely difficult to account for every patent that might be relevant to your technology. However, this is not to advocate that you, you know, intentionally infringe a competitor's technology because that will cause trouble. The best practice is if, you know, if you're worried about potentially infringing somebody else's uh, technology is to have good patent counsel who could advise you about, you know, what the competitor is doing and what type of patents uh, there are um, and to come up with an effective strategy to protect your business. Uh, and with that, uh, I, that is it. Uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to uh, reach out. Excellent. We do. There is some questions. You going to come in, Ash? Let's see. I can, I can. All right, Ash. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. That was awesome. Let me uh, turn this thing off right here. Well, first, uh, here's the first question. And then you can you can do the next question, Ash. Hi. Okay. My first commercial game, and I'm from another country. How can I protect my game in other countries? Right. So... Uh, copyright protection, um, copyright protection works in a weird way in that, like, as soon as it's created, it kind of, copyright protection kind of exists in every country all at once. Like, it, it kind of have copyrights in, so like, a good way to think about it is like, when the Beatles created their music in England, right? Once they created it, not only did they have copyright protection in England, but they also at the same time had copyright protection in the United States as well. It's in terms of enforcement, you have to go to those jurisdictions to enforce your copyright in those jurisdictions. So you like if somebody's infringing your artwork in uh, in Japan, you cannot go to like South Africa to try to to enforce it against the entity in Japan. You would have to go to you would have to go to Japan. But like. You, know, you might have to register your work in uh, those jurisdictions and that so I would recommend talking to those local like an attorney from those local jurisdictions to figure out what the requirements are. But generally speaking, there are like there are these huge international agreements in which all these like practicing countries such like Japan, uh, South Korea, United States, England, they're all a part of and they essentially say that, we recognize, you know, if you create some something, if there's copyright in one country, then there's copyright in another. And um, in terms of like other forms of IP protection, like trademarks, uh, you do have to file for trademark uh, registration in other countries. Um, you're so you would not be able to force a U.S. trademark in like England. And the same is true for uh, patents as well. Th those are. Uh, limited to those jurisdictions. So, you know, patents are very expensive in terms of you know, getting global protection because they, each jurisdiction has their own fees. Um, but you'll hear about like, uh, like for trademarks, you'll hear about like, oh, Nintendo filed for like trademark protection in South Korea. And because they have different regulations about how they publish things that, oh, things got uh, not necessarily leaked, but they got released early, you know, we found out about them earlier because of different rules, but so you have to go to those jurisdictions. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Our next one is from the discord from Borislav at Trico man studios. If the IP of the game is registered to one person, not the studio and the studio has the exclusive rights to use the IP indefinitely, can this discourage investors? And what are some other implications of such a situation? Right. So, if you have if you have a license to use the work indefinitely, uh, then th that doesn't necessarily discourage investors. The importance is to have the right to use the the copyrighted material. And that you're not infringe, therefore infringing upon any uh, other copyrights. That fear of getting sued is what ultimately will deter investors from, uh, you know, entering into any agreements. So it is important to have that paperwork uh, done. Now, in terms of like, you know, it's, as a lawyer, I would always recommend uh, generally owning. Your, the underlying IP for what's necessary in your game. But if you know, like, 
if it's only you can only acquire a license, then a license can be just as good as a um, as an assignment. And this happens all the time, um, and, you know, especially with music. Um, like this is why, like, if you know, when they like re-release Grand Theft Auto, and you go listen to the radio, you know, they have different music. It's because like they had the rights at one point, but now they don't, and they, had, they weren't able to go renegotiate those rights. So it, it's more important in terms of making sure that you have the rights and you have the necessary rights and you know, a lawyer would be able to help you guide you through that if you had any questions. And you can of course perform due diligence in which you examine all the contracts to make sure that you have the necessary rights. Interesting. Uh, next question from Neoware. Can I prove that I have the IP ownership by showing the development material website with content? Uh, so, uh, in terms of, uh, proving IP ownership, so it, it depends on what type of IP we're talking about. If we are talking about copyrights, um, you know, if you're, if you're able to show that you're the author of the work, then it's just automatically assumed that you own the copyright protection, unless somebody else can pr provide, you know, evidence such as like, a, an assignment agreement or some other corroborating evidence that you do, don't own the, I, the copyright anymore. It is a good idea to register the copyright because registration of uh, copyrights can help clarify that because like there, you would need to re register who owns it. And then you could also register if that the ownership gets transferred at any point. In terms of other forms of um, IP, uh, like I said, with patents, patents are real easy in terms of ownership uh, because it's whoever, you know, whoever files for the patent application. Now, uh, I, I should clarify that uh, with patents, it is the inventors who own it, and you do have to get an assignment uh, with that as well. Uh, with trademarks, trademarks are given to whoever is using the mark. So it's trademarks generally go to the company. Um, and it's usually assumed whoever is registering uh, owns it, but you, you, there are steps to show uh, who, who owns it. All right, you wanna do the next one, Ash? Sure. We have the Joker of Aces on Twitch. If devs make their own AI tool based on a public neutral network, but trained on an in-house data and parameters, would they be able to hold the copyright when they use the tool for creating assets? So in terms of generating uh, any artwork using AI, it's, um, it, it's pretty, based off of our current law, it's pretty clear that it does not matter what you, necessary like input to into it uh if you are not the one making the creative choices in terms of the output then you cannot own the out output so basically like the way like the copyright office and others have talked about it like ai is like it's almost like a black box where it's like you throw all this stuff into the black box and then it produces something but you don't actually know what's happening in the black box that's causing it to produce uh, the, the artwork. Now, I, I'm sure there are some computer engineers here that could be like, well, you know, uh, if you go through the code or something, but like the way the law views it, it's, it really views it as like a black box. And be, because you're not in control of making the creative choices that are as producing the artwork, you cannot be deemed as an author. It does not matter if you own the tools that are producing it, if you are not the ones making the creative choices, then you cannot um, claim ownership of it. The difference between like AI and like Photoshop is that when you utilize in Photoshop, you are making the artistic choices in, you know, messing with the photograph and editing it. Um, you know, it's not you're not just like throwing it into a black box and then something else comes out. Uh, so it, it it's really you know. With AI, it, it, re it really is important to remember that, you know, anything that it generates, it, it, you're, you're skating on, you know, legal ground where uh, it might not be protectable. 
That's I like the way you explain that. So if I took a bunch of crayons and a piece of paper and stuck it inside of a box and shook it around and then pulled out the paper, paper there, I could not get. Yeah, because like, or you could not get a copyright on that because it's like you're not well, you're not necessarily making the artistic ex expression. You know, you're not you're not choosing to draw like this. Uh, that that gets it like that example is a bit more complicated because like you can make the argument that like you as a human are choosing to yeah, like the direction the, that I'm shaking the box. Right. But it, with AI, you're really getting into like a granular argument of like who, like the picture that's created, who's making that choice of like drawing that way of putting that character there of, you know, putting the sun over in the corner. And if the answer is, well, the AI made all those choices. Then it's like, then you can't protect that. And it's really, it, it comes down to the, the idea that it it's the human making the creative choices. It's, and that's who gets, whoever's making the creative choices gets to own it. And only humans can own and exploit copyright. So, you know, anything that's created by any, like uh, back in the day, like people used to try to register, like they would get like a horse to like, you know, they would attach like a paintbrush to a horse's tail and get mm -hmm. them to paint it and they would try to register it and the copyright is like no like the course is clearly making the painting you can't claim ownership over that uh, as a result oh that's interesting Ah, huh, that is super interesting okay from bobby b on youtube if you're taking inspiration from a character in a different game how much do you have to deviate in visual de design and movement for example from that character to avoid infringement that sounds like a it depends answer ash it <laughs> it, it really does. It's a really big, it depends. It, it honestly, it depends on how much, uh, what, what you're taking. So, you know, like if you're taking inspiration from like Han Solo and you're saying like, I want to make a rough kind of space cowboy type character. Well, those are very abstract kind of ideas and that no one can claim ownership over. But if you start to go, well, I want him to wear a vest with a white shirt uh, and a pistol on, uh, on his side, and I, I think he wears blue pants, uh, and, and he has a giant, uh, you know, a giant carpet-like creature as a friend, like then you're like really pushing the, well, like that's pretty similar to what Han Solo is. So it, it really depends on what you're taking and what you're taking inspiration from. You know, copyright law doesn't want to stop people from taking inspiration from things, but what it wants to stop is like, you know, co copying to the point where you're basically trading off of other people's hard work, um, what other people have uh, done to develop that character. So, you know, it, you have to be like really careful and, and I should also say that, like, just because, like, you follow what the law says in terms of, like, like, oh, I didn't take anything that was protected, does not mean that you're not going to get sued. Like, you know, companies sue and threaten litigation all the time over, you know, a lot of what sometimes might be considered petty, but sometimes might be considered, you know, they're just enforcing their rights, you know, all the time it, it happens. So, there, you know, even though by law you might be right, you know it might cost you in the end because you know practically they they may just have more money and try to shut you down anyway. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. We thank you so much, and we know that there's more questions. So if you can hang out a little bit afterwards in the sure. Discord, in the post session chat channel, and you know what, I'm going to post a link to it real quick into our chat so people can go there. And if you're having troubles getting there, uh, just DM me or Ash on Discord and we'll we'll drag you in there somehow. Thank you so much, Andrew. This is awesome. This is our last, uh, this is our last, our, our last one for, don't you wish this would just go on more days, Ash? No. <laughs> no. I'm tired. You're tired? You had a long day. Okay, so check it out, y'all. Join our Discord, discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. Uh, you can check out all of our other podcasts. Just look up Indie Game Business. Here we go. Um, we have free online classes, indiegamebusiness.teachable.com. 
We've got all of the things at Linktree slash Indie Game Business. And we don't have a show this Friday, but we do next Friday and the Friday after and the Friday after and the Friday after and the Friday after. We've got a bunch of bunch of shows lined up on the Fridays. But thank you so much, Andrew, for coming in here. It's been awesome. It was, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Right on. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.